In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Those readings are full of feelings this morning, aren't they? If you're not someone who likes to talk about your feelings, this might be a tough day. Jonah has feelings. Paul has feelings. And when Matthew is writing, it's likely the last quarter of the first century, some 40-ish years after the resurrection. Enough time has passed that there are different groups now, groups that would eventually become what we think of as the early church. In fact, Matthew is one of the first to use that word. In Greek, it's ekklesia, and it's, it appears roughly around this time for the first time. It's the idea of a group of people who sort of gather and worship and look a little bit like what we might think of as church. But it's important to remember that the community that Matthew is writing to is a Jewish community. So they keep the law, and there is a fair amount of urging in Matthew's gospel to keep the law well, meaning not be like the scribes and the Pharisees who are accused of this hardness of heart, who are accused of following the letter of the law but not understanding the spirit of the law. Matthew is interested in faithful keeping of the law in a way that is still kind and loving. So there's conflict in the Matthean community, and Matthew is addressing that. Conflict inside, conflict outside. The conflict outside likely comes from their other Jewish siblings, other sects, other groups, who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, who don't believe that he was the Son of God, resurrected. And of course, there's always conflict internally in church, right? We know that. Because there are new believers on the scene who aren't Jews, who aren't Gentiles. And so for this next sort of big season of growing and evolving, there is this constant tension in Scripture. And we see it especially in the book of Acts, but we see it sort of beginning in Matthew. This, this tension about you know, what happens when Jesus sends us out to evangelize? Jesus sends us out to share the good news, and then someone receives it, and they want to join the church, and now what? What does that mean for someone to join this still law-practicing Jewish community? And so for the next 50 to 70 years, and if we're honest, really, for the next all of Christendom, there is this tension and this discernment and this wondering and frustration about what it means for the people of God to move forward together, to be different and yet to be the same. And they ask very real questions at this point about would these new believers be equal members? Would they need to keep the law? Would they need to keep kosher? Who would have the privilege of leading this community? Would it be just the Jewish people who have been around, who know God and have practiced God law? Or is there room for some of these new believers to take a leadership role? Once we have preached the good news and new people have received it, now what? In the gospel this morning, we have this parable that creates a lot of feeling for a lot of people. Usually they're feelings of frustration, disappointment, Maybe some jealousy and some anger, too. Certainly that's emblematic of the anger we heard in that lesson about Jonah. I'm not going to go there or we'd be here all morning, but just hold that lesson from Jonah and Jonah's anger out here because it's, it's related to this story and it's related to what Jesus is doing. In the parable, the owner of a vineyard picks up 
the equivalent of day laborers and sends them into the vineyard to work several times, each time going to hire a new group and each time saying, you go into the vineyard, you go into the vineyard, you also go into the vineyard. It is an intentional chorus. You go into the vineyard. And at the end of the day, the owner of the vineyard pays each of the workers the same stipend. So that means that the worker who was there, as it's often translated, at the 11th hour, or here it's five o'clock, that worker who comes late and does the least gets paid just as much as the one who worked all day in the blazing sun doing hard physical labor. It's hard to hear that story and not ask how that's fair, right? Most of us have a pretty keen sense, I think, of what's fair. As the mother of two small children, I can tell you that that's ingrained in us when we're very small. What's fair? Some of us as adults might feel it more than others, but we all somewhere, sometime, probably many times in our lives, have had those moments of anger and frustration and disappointment when something happened to us that we knew wasn't fair, that we didn't deserve. It's part of the human experience. And at the time, there was this shift already happening in the Roman Empire. What was an economy where mostly small growers were able to make wine and grow food and make a living suddenly had changed. The Romans were taking, sort of buying, but mostly taking a lot of the land and creating much bigger estates for themselves where they grew the food and made the wine. So the smaller owners, Jews, foreigners, not Roman citizens, have mostly had their homes, their dreams, their livelihoods taken from them at this moment when Jesus is telling the story of this parable. And so we begin this parable with loss, with the sense that these workers that are getting picked up and taken to the vineyard are already the victims of a system that was working against them. They are the ones who likely had their own homes and their own places and their own ways of making a living. And now they have no choice but to wait and see if they're hired for the day. Something unfair has already happened to them. Also in this context, we have to keep in mind the promises of God that have been handed down through the prophets from generation to generation. People like Micah and Isaiah and Zechariah who prophesy that a time, a place in time, a moment will come when there is peace when there is abundance, a time when each person will have everything they need. In fact, Micah 4.4 talks about each person sitting under their own fig tree. It's this great image of everyone having their own place, of everyone having their own wealth, of everyone being able to live comfortably. So there was this expectation in the midst of this situation that was unfair, there was still this expectation that at some point God would act and the Messiah would come, and the reign of God would begin. And in that reign, there would be enough for everyone. It's in this context that Jesus tells this parable, which sort of makes it feel even more unfair. In a time when Rome had taken away the hope of the people and now takes away their livelihood, a time when there wasn't enough work for those people who had already lost their dreams and probably their homes, it's in this context that Jesus describes to us a parable 
in order to point out the difference between God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world. It's in this context that Matthew writes, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Who do you think he's talking about? In this case, it's not the workers. In this case, he's literally saying to the Romans, all of you who are wealthy, all of you who have what you need, you will be last because God will lift up the lowly and the poor. And that was good news to these communities who were impoverished and oppressed, that God would act and would do something different. So that addresses some of the conflict outside of the community. But there was conflict inside the community with the Gentiles too, and here it is about the workers. The Jewish faithful who had come to believe in Jesus in this community didn't know what to do with these new believers. And they couldn't believe that these people could come late and just join and be of equal status and have a seat at the table. They couldn't believe that the people who jumped on board last, who came to righteousness late, like tax collectors and sinners who found Jesus at the 11th hour, how could it possibly be that they suddenly had access to all of the promises of God, that they were now a part of God's chosen people, that they were now a part of the covenant? How could it be that they were equal inheritors of the kingdom? When in fact, these Jewish members had already done all of the work, right? They had likely, many of them, if not all of them, been punished and tortured, perhaps disowned by their families, had some of their possessions, maybe all of their possessions taken away because of their faith in Jesus. Many of them were forced into hiding. Some of them were persecuted. And now, now it's okay for these others who hadn't made any of these sacrifices to just sort of stroll in and join the party. How can that possibly be fair and reflective of a just God? I think the easiest way to read this parable if you're like me and you're a visual person, is that Jesus is the, vin is the landowner who keeps sending people into the vineyard. You can read it sort of with a, more se a broad sense of God, but I, I myself, I like the personal touch of Jesus in that role because I like to imagine his face, his voice, his eyes, when he looks at me and when he looks at everyone else and says, you also go into the vineyard. You and you and you. Honestly, it's a little bit like Oprah, right? You go into the vineyard, and you go into the vineyard. Everybody gets to go into the vineyard, no matter who you are, or where you've been, or what you've done. Whether it's your first time, or fifth time, or 90th time, whether you deserve it or not, whether people like you or not, whether you've contributed in the past or not, this parable says to you that now is the time. You go into the vineyard. And what that means for us is that you and I and we have to go do the work of the gospel. That's what that means. Go into the vineyard and plant and grow and share the good news of Jesus and be part of God's labor in this world to love and heal and save. But here's the warning of this parable. Don't think that because you're part of the labor that you are better than anyone else. Don't think that because you got here sooner that you have more rights and more privilege. Because there isn't one of us that gets more of God than anyone else, or less of God, or more love, or less love. It, it just doesn't, God's economy just doesn't work that way. 
There is no competition in God's economy, no earning, no deserving. And it doesn't matter how late you came to the party, there is always enough. There is always enough. There is always more than enough. But I was with a group of people, I won't say who, I was with a group of people this week and I sneaked in on the end of the conversation about this passage and there was a lot of angst in the room about the fact that this is hard. And so I wanna say, if you are struggling with this text, take heart. Believers have been struggling with this text, with this idea, with this feeling since the very beginning. It's why we see in scripture that all of these people are talking back and forth about it. They are struggling and sometimes it looks flat on the page when we read it, but it's not. They are, there is real conflict here. But the good news is that for those of us who come late, for those of us who wander away and have to come back, it's never too late. You are never too late. Nothing and no one is ever so broken that love and grace can't fix it. No one is ever so far gone that they are beyond God's redeeming. And the good news for us is that salvation, as Jesus conceives of it, the thing that we all share here in this space when we come forward to the table, the, the worship that we share together is emblematic of the fact that salvation is not individual. There are a lot of Christians in the world who believe in a, a personal journey with Jesus, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but when you listen to Jesus, he talks about salvation as something that is communal something that is corporate, something that happens to the whole body, the whole people gets saved. Not just one of us, not just one of us who merits it, everyone gets saved. And what that means is that none of us get saved alone. Salvation is communal, which means that we go together, all of us, always. And that's why when we listen to texts like this, we have to learn how to rejoice when someone comes late to the party because it's really good news. So we rejoice when someone finds Jesus. We rejoice, especially if we've had a role in helping someone find their faith, their hope, their peace, their wholeness, even if it looks different than ours. If our labor and our love was a part of someone feeling more whole in this world, then thank God and rejoice that we've been able to be a part of God's work, to know the abundance of life, and to know God's love and security and goodness all of this time, because that's what we share now, is this incredible gift, the blessing of community and of God's love. So if you are struggling with this text, that's okay. But I wanna encourage you to carry it with you this week. Don't just push it away today because it's uncomfortable. Keep it with you all week and try to find the freedom in it. The freedom to step away from that piece of us that is primal, that is, that is little, that is so interested in what's fair and who did what and who did what when. It's the freedom to step away from our sense of what's, what's right and to understand that God's ways are bigger than our ways. It's the freedom to step away from our sense of economy, right? We, especially in Fairfield County, we have a very small, defined definition of what that looks like. And God's economy looks very, very different. So this is the invitation to step away from our expectation of repayment, 
to step away from the idea that what goes around comes around, to step away from the idea that we can earn or merit or somehow deserve God's love or mercy. And if we can do that, then we can learn in this text to find gratitude in the fact that we are already here, that we already know this love, that we already have had the gift of sharing it together, that everything you need has already been given to you. And if we can do that, then we can rejoice when there are others who come to sit at the table. We can build our table bigger and wider, and we can truly invite everyone to sit at it so that we might rejoice each time God says to someone new, you also go into the vineyard. And so that we might rejoice every morning when God says to us again, you also go into the vineyard. Amen.